This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. Kate hands me the Palm Pilot, the floppy disk, and the SanDisk data card and says, run. And I do. Three flights of steps, go through that first big vault door, slam it behind me, run into his office, kneel down in front of the bag, and realize that I've got three devices in my hand. There are four pockets on the bag. They're all completely similar. And I can't for the life of me remember which device I pulled out of which pocket. I hear him coming through that first big vault door. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy. On each episode, we get one former intelligence operative to tell the story of one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. This is part two of our episode with Eric O'Neill, an FBI agent who helped catch Robert Hansen, one of the most damaging spies in U.S. history. If you haven't heard part one, you should listen to it first and come back to us. The year was 2000, and O'Neill was just 26 years old. As part of his cover, he was assigned to work for Hansen in the FBI. Over time, O'Neill begins to win Hansen's trust, but the stress of the case is putting a strain on his marriage. O'Neill picks up the story from here. Working undercover in the Hansen case was so difficult in terms of the amount of stress it piled on me that my marriage became a train wreck. In what I did in the FBI in the first place, working undercover as a ghost, it had the highest rate of divorce in the FBI. That's how stressful that is. And the problem is that you can't act out on that stress when you're working undercover. You have to play a role. You have to be a very good actor. You have to not let your emotions in particular show. But we're all animals that need to show our emotions. We need to dive into the deep end of a pool and scream it out at some point, right? And unfortunately, what happens is you let it out close to the people that love you, and that puts you into fights with them. And that's what I was doing without even really knowing it. I was distant. I was unavailable. I was preoccupied. I wasn't easy to live with. I was grumpy. I was honestly lying to her. I couldn't tell her what I was doing, that this was the most critical case that the FBI had ever run. I was telling her that I was working a computer job at FBI headquarters and the server crashed again. I didn't know what to tell her other than that. What I wanted to say is, honey, give me a little bit of grace. I'm hunting the biggest spy in U.S. history, maybe world history. It's hard. (laughs) But I couldn't say that. So when we received information from the former KGB intelligence officer source, we couldn't use it to immediately arrest Hansen. There were a few problems with it. One, it was circumstantial at best. So we received it from a spy, and a good defense attorney will say that you can't believe what this former Russian spy who worked against the United States is telling you. He's a spy. He is a liar by trade. And this could be a very clever espionage technique by the Russians to discredit a 
decorated agent who worked against them for his entire career on the eve of his retirement from the FBI. They could also say that this is just a partial match on a print. You know, it's not conclusive. Um, the KGB can fake the voice on that tape. There were, there were many ways he could pick it apart. So we really needed Hanson to spy. We had to prove that he was the spy we'd been after for 20 years. And the way to do that was to build a case, learn information about him in the case, and catch him red-handed making a drop to the Russians. Hanson had a very strange routine. He loved his Palm Pilot to death. Now, for those of you who are on the younger side, you won't know what a Palm Pilot is. But in the year 2000, it was the coolest device that you could have on your person. It was the smartphone before a smartphone was invented. It was uh, called a personal data assistant. And you would take a plastic stick called a stylus and you would tap the screen. You couldn't even use your finger to tap information into it. And basically what it was was a digital calendar. It was very time consuming. And Hansen had one. He had a Palm 3X, which was an older version, was pretty thick, and he kept it in his left back pocket. And he would pull it out multiple times every single day. Uh, it would give him alerts for all of his calendar information. He'd even pull it out because he was a very religious man uh, every day to pray the rosary. It would, give, it would remind him that every day he, he would have to stop, kneel down, and pray the rosary. And he loved it. And I asked him about it. And he said that every great executive has one of these and Eric, you're nothing but a do-nothing, no-good, worthless clerk. And so you don't have one. And if you ever wanted to be something in the FBI and, uh, and, and make it as a special agent, you would have a device like this and you would organize your life and you wouldn't be so frantic and making mistakes all the time. And so I watched him with this thing. And he, as I said, he kept it in his left back pocket. And so every time he sat down, he would have to remove it. Otherwise, he'd be seeing a chiropractor. The thing was too big. And so when he sat at his desk in particular, which was really the only place he sat down in our office, he'd pull it out of his pocket and, like clockwork, reach down and put it in his bag that he would keep right next to his desk in the same spot every day. It was a blue shoulder bag, and it had two pockets on either side that were um, precisely similar. They were zippered pockets. They zippered at the top. He'd reach down, unzipper the pocket, put it in, and zipper it back up. And then as soon as he stood up, he'd reach down, grab the Palm Pilot, put it in his back pocket, which was interesting because, you know, you could, you could leave it in your bag. You could leave it on your desk. But what he was doing is a routine to make sure it was always on his person. And I thought, oh, man, he really has something in there. The problem is it's always on his person. So I said, I got to get one of these. I went to the chief scientist of the FBI. Dr. Kielman, and I requisitioned a Palm Pilot from him. I said, actually, uh, Doc, can I have two? And he said, two. And I said, I'd like to give one to my boss, you know, ingratiate myself. And he said, your boss is Robert Hansen, right? You're going to need anything you can get. I'll give you two. And I got two Palm 5s, right? Now, Palm 5s were faster, better battery life, more slender. He could have put it in the jacket of his suit, right, uh, as opposed to his back pocket. And so I pushed it across the desk to him. I said, hey, boss, look what I got you. And check out mine. Pulled mine out, tapped it a few times. You know, now I'm, now I'm going to make it to executive service. And he laughed at me and said, you never will, but 
Uh, good that you got one of those devices. You're on your way. And he pushed the Palm Pilot I had gotten for him back across the desk at me, said, take this back. I'll keep mine. I've written the encryption on it myself. And these idiots at the FBI, those are his words, not mine, right? Um, couldn't crack it on their best day. So we had to find a way to get him away from that Palm Pilot with sufficient time to take it. We had to trick him, fool him, and get it away from him. Hansen drove this old silver Ford Taurus, and the FBI wanted to search it because, hey, there's, there could be evidence in the car, and the best place to do that is in the belly of FBI headquarters down in the parking garage. And all I had to do was get him away from his car for long enough for them to conduct the search, do whatever they needed to do, and get it back before we return. So I found an opportunity when Hansen told me that we were going to go over to a cybersecurity company that was building a new technology that would protect an IP address. And that we were going to go over and, and talk to them and learn about the technology and see whether it would be something that we could implement over at the FBI. So I requisitioned one of those big black FBI SUVs that you see in all the movies and TV shows. They do exist with all the lights and sirens and gizmos, and I think it's bulletproof and it's really cool. And his car was left behind. And so we headed over to meet with this company and meet with their owner and talk about the technology, and it was fascinating. But it ended too early. And we were going to get back to the FBI way before we should have. And I'm driving and at the same time waiting. And when he's not looking, I'm checking my pager and knew that we were getting back too soon and knew that we were going to be in trouble. So I drove a different way than we probably should have gone. And he looked at me and he said, what are you doing? Why are you getting off here on the parkway? You know, it would be a lot faster to go this way. If you stayed on, we could get downtown and I said, look, you know, I was an investigative specialist. I know what I'm doing. Now you're in my world. Trust me. My plan, of course, was to drive right into M Street traffic down near the waterfront in Georgetown. And it was miserable. It's always bumper to bumper on a good day. Now we're crawling along. And to make matters worse, you know, God looked out for me. There was an accident up ahead. So we were just in a parking lot. And he said, get to a side street and get around this. And I said, I can't, you know, I'm kind of stuck. I can't make these cars move. We're just going to have to sit for a little while, be patient. And he said, you know what? I can get out of this car, walk up a few blocks past all of this, get in a cab and get there way before you're ever going to crawl through this mess you created and get us back. My time is valuable and you're wasting my time. And he opens the door to get out. I said, wait, wait, boss, don't get out. He gets out of the car, and I got out of the car. Now the, the car is in park, this big black SUV just sitting there in park. And he's walking up the street, and I chase after him, and I stop him. And I said, look, there's something i got to talk to you about. It's Juliana. It's what you've been talking about. It's about having kids. I had that conversation with her. She's not ready, I am, and I don't know what to do, and I thought we could talk about this. Now, this was getting back to that conversation that he would bring up again and again and again, he was real interested in this, and he got back in the car. And it took us forever to get back to the office, but we had this very long conversation that I didn't want to have, that I had to sit through and nod in the appropriate places about how my faith is demanding that I get my wife pregnant and have many children, and that it's the time to do it, and here are all the ways you can convince her. 
at the same time, the FBI finished the search of his car, got it back in place before we returned to the office, and we learned that when they searched his car, they found trash bags, packing tape, chalk, everything he would need to load a drop, and we knew that a drop was coming. You're listening to I Spy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. We return to the story of FBI agent Eric O'Neill, who has been assigned to trap a suspected spy, Robert Hansen. Back to O'Neill. We knew that a drop was coming. We knew it not only because we searched his car and we found the sort of tools that you, you, you would use for a drop, including the trash bags that we knew from what we had gotten from the source that put us on Hansen in the first place. He would wrap his drop in trash bags. So, you know, he had the trash bags. He had the packing tape. He had the chalk to set his signal site. All the things that he needed. And so we knew a drop was coming, but we also knew from overseas that the Russian intelligence was ready for a drop. They were expecting one. And we were sure it was Hansen who was going to make the drop. But the problem was we couldn't rely on surveillance catching him doing it. I mean, surveillance is a tricky thing, particularly with a target who is hyper aware and trained to spot surveillance. So we needed to know not only where he would be when he made that drop, but when he was going to make it so we could be there in front of him, not following behind. And one of my jobs was figure out where that's going to be. Go find that information. Well, how am I supposed to figure that out? He's not going to just tell me. You know, I've gotten really good at having conversations, these elicitation conversations and tricking them, but, uh, you know, he's never going to tell me that. But he had that Palm Pilot and he had that routine. And I knew that if you encrypt something, you're protecting it. If you have a routine, that means you're always aware where it is, you're protecting it. Let's get it away from him. Now, to get it away from him, we had to trick him to being away from it with sufficient time that we could get it out of his bag, copy it, and get it back before he knew it was gone. So we had to break his routine. And you break someone's routine by throwing them off balance. I was really used, in this case, to being off balance. I knew how it felt, and I really wanted him off balance. So Kate and I and Rich Garcia, who was the section chief, the only other person I knew in headquarters other than the director, also worked in a office down the hall from me. So if things got really dicey, my orders were to run to his office and he was always armed and ready. So the three of us came up with a plan. It was the steal the Palm Pilot plan. Rich and that assistant director that Hanson didn't like, the same guy we'd stolen the art from, were going to come in unannounced when Hanson and I were sitting at his desk and completely startle him. So Hanson and I are sitting at his desk. We're talking about something or other. I made sure we were sitting down. I had my pager where he couldn't see in my lap, and I sent a, a star, the, the asterisk character, to, to Kate to say, operations go. Rich and the assistant director were ready. They saunter in. So Rich had the code to the door. He was the only other person that Hanson knew had the code to the door, so he had to be involved. He opens the door to skit. It opens unannounced. Hanson is startled. Rich comes in with the assistant director. He doesn't like who we stole the art from. And there's the art hanging over his desk. And he's looking a little sickly. And then he gets angry. 
and the assistant director walks up, slaps $20 on his desk, and says, you and me, the shooting range, and I bet you that 20, five targets out of five, I will beat you. And Hanson tries to beg off. He says, I, you know, I'm, I'm much too busy. Uh, you, you know, my, my staff and I are, are working on something. We've got a deadline. We've got to get it done. We didn't. He was lying. Everybody knew that. And the ADIC says, I don't think you understand. This is not a request. Now we used everything we learned about Hanson. Doesn't like authority. Doesn't like this guy. Doesn't like to be challenged. Doesn't like to be interrupted. But he really, really, really likes to shoot. Guy was a gun fanatic. And so he grumbles to his feet. He grabs his ear protection and his eye protection. He holsters his firearm. You know, nobody walks around wearing a firearm in FBI headquarters. Everybody just locks it in their desk. And for the first time, forgets to reach down beside his bag and grab that Palm Pilot. We totally broke his routine. And he stumbles off after these two. He goes down all the way to the basement where that parking garage is. Well, that's also where the shooting range is. And as soon as he gets in there, I had an asset down in the shooting range who texted me, in pocket shooting. So I get up out of the seat, go over to his bag, kneel down in front of it, go through the pockets, and lo and behold, there's the Palm Pilot. There's also a data card and a floppy disk. All that has data, sounds good. I grabbed all three devices, ran down three flights of steps where a tech team had been set up and had been waiting for me to get this right, handed off the devices. They hooked it up to their computer systems, ran their software. And he said, yeah, the data card and the Palm Pilot are encrypted. I said, can you crack it? They said, eventually, but we're not going to try to crack it down. We're on a time crunch. We're going to copy it all, encrypted, one-to-one, just clone the thing, and we can crack it later. And I said, good, we'll get going. And as they're doing that, as I'm now out in the hall because I've got too much nervous energy and I'm distracting them, they threw me out, I get another page. And it says, out of pocket, coming to you. So I knocked on the door gently and I said, hey, everybody, I'm uh, going to need those devices. And they said, ah, we're almost done. We, you know, a couple more minutes. And I said, you don't understand. He's on his way back. He's armed. I'm not. And if I don't get that stuff back before he gets there, he's going to shoot me. And they said, it's not that bad. Hold on. We've got a couple more minutes. I'm very stressed out at this point. They finish. Kate hands me the... Palm Pilot, the floppy disk, and the sand disk data card, and says, run. Three flights of steps, fly up the steps, get to 9930, go through that first big vault door, slam it behind me, run into his office, kneel down in front of the bag, and realize that I've got three devices in my hand. There are four pockets on the bag. They're all completely similar. And I can't for the life of me remember which device I pulled out of which pocket. And the odds are pretty terrible of getting this right on a guess. And as I'm trying to do some stupid thing that I probably studied once upon a time in a psychology class years before and self-hypnotized to remember, I hear him coming through that first big vault door, which makes a lot of noise when you go through it. So I just dropped all three. Best guess, you know, 
Sign of the cross, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, zipped up all four pockets, ran to my desk, sat there, tried the hardest I've ever tried in my life not to sweat and put the best poker face I have ever had and ever will have right there on my mug. He finally gets through that big door, glares at me, sweeps through the main pit area into his office, slams his door, and I hear, zip. And I'm thinking to myself, well, damn, I am going to get killed. There's no way I got this right. He's going to come out with his firearm. He's just been shooting and just use that last round on me. Then he's going to take the open passport that we knew he had, uh, and that the Russians had given him in a prior drop, and the open ticket to Moscow, get on a plane and be gone. And I've just blown this entire case. So maybe it's better he shoots me because there's no way I'm going to be able to face anybody in the FBI after this. And then I thought for a heartbeat, maybe I should run. Go down the hall to Rich Garcia's office. That's where I'm supposed to go when things get bad. That would save me. You know, it's better to be alive uh, and in trouble uh, with, with the FBI than, you know, slumped over my desk with a bullet hole in me. But I thought really hard about suspicion and paranoia. And I realized that if I'm not here when he comes out, no matter what, on the slim chance I got it right. If I'm not here, he is so wrapped up right now. He is so concerned. He is so paranoid. If I don't talk him into this, if I don't make him feel safe, he might run and the case is blown anyway. So I'm damned if I do and if I'm damned if I don't, so I might as well do. So I stayed. And he comes out of the office. He walks right to my desk. He leans over it. So we're face to face. Glares at me and he says, were you in my office? I looked right back at him and I said, yeah, I was in there. I put a memo in your inbox. Didn't you see it? And I had. I had made a memo just for that day and put it in his inbox just in case he asked whether I was in his office. And he looks at me hard. He uses this Jedi mind trick that people in the CIA love to use that, you know, in the FBI you start losing that you use in this kind of spy versus spy business. It's this hard look that is tricky. It's, it seems to say, I know everything. I'm just waiting for you to tell me. And I guess maybe sometimes people break and they just blurt out their secrets. I wasn't going to break. I just looked back at them and then I, I gave him kind of a quizzical look and then I gave him kind of an annoyed look. And I think that might have sold it because he steps back, points at me, and he says, I never want you in my office again. And he leaves for the day. Less than a week later, he's on a bridge in Foxstone Park in Vienna, Virginia. He's just loaded his drop to the Russians, wrapped in trash bags and packing tape. He retraces his steps through this pretty little park, Foxstone Park, back to where his silver Ford Taurus is parked right on the sidewalk. This park is a stone's throw from his house, so it's in his neighborhood. He knows it well. And he sets a signal on the Foxstone Park sign that will tell the Russian intelligence officer that will drive by serendipitously later uh, that he's loaded the drop and it's ready for them to pick it up, goes to his car, pulls out his keys, and two SWAT vans screech to a halt. FBI agents jump out with their firearms pointed at him, tell him to drop his keys, raise his hands, 
He does so. He looks at them and he says, the guns are not necessary. And then he says, what took you so long? He's arrested for espionage. The entire time that he walked into that park thinking he was completely safe and secure to load his final drop, FBI agents and ghosts were surrounding him in camouflage, hidden where he wouldn't see, recording his every move, recording him loading a known drop site, which caught him red-handed and committing espionage. And they knew not only where he would be, but the exact time of night he would be there because the Palm Pilot is a calendar. And when we decrypted it, we learned the exact date of his next drop and the exact time and location where he would make that drop. I was not part of the arrest team. In fact, on the day of Hansen's arrest, he had no idea that I had worked undercover to catch him. Um, And he wasn't told that for a very long time. Um, In fact, the FBI never told him. He probably didn't learn that until, God, I did a TV interview a year later. And so I wasn't there when Hansen was arrested. I had gone away for the weekend. I really needed to go away. It was something that I had planned to do in Bethany Beach, Delaware, at a beach house there. Even though it was freezing cold, it was still fun to be away. I wasn't sure if Hansen was going to be arrested on the Sunday he was arrested, which was February 18th, or he would be arrested on Tuesday because there were two arrest plans. The first was arrest him when he walks out of that park. The second, which was the one I advocated, was let him get away with it, let him feel that he's won. And on Tuesday, I had set up a meeting at Quantico with their uh, technology department. I was going to drive to the middle of a parking lot, get out of the car with the keys, walk away. And then my idea was a agent that Hanson trusted and liked was going to get into the car next to him, shake his hand and say, we know it was you, Bob. We know you want to tell us how you did it. And I thought maybe he would talk. But uh, the FBI was was very uh, upset and angry that one of their own had betrayed And for other reasons, they arrested him the second he walked out of that park. So Sunday night, my wife and I were driving back from Delaware to where we lived in D.C. We had pulled uh, across the D.C. line and were driving to the apartment on on a really busy road, a highway. And I got the call. Finally, my phone rang and it was Kate. And she said, I had to talk to you. It's done. And I was so shaky at that point. The adrenaline that had been just flowing through my veins nonstop for all these months finally seemed to drain away. And I couldn't drive. I had to pull over. So I pull over on the side of this extremely busy road. You know, trucks are passing and they're they're moving so fast the car's shaking. And Juliana's just, what's happening? What's going on? And I, I asked Kate, I said, can I tell Juliana? And she said, just her, no one else. We're still trying to catch the intelligence officer. We need to keep this very secret. And I hung up on Kate and I turned, I looked at Juliana and I said, there's something I have to tell you. And I told her everything. And I thought, this is it. This is where the divorce comes in. I've just told her an entire story how for months I have been lying to her in every way possible. And I was terrified. 
And she looked at me and held that look and then she just said, now I understand, and gave me a hug. You know, I'll never forget that moment. I mean, that is the person that you keep forever. It is a difficult thing to, to achieve something so important at 26 years old. I was 26 when we arrested Hanson. I turned 27 in March. And I, I like to say that I've spent the rest of my life in a way chasing Hanson, trying to better that, find, find that thing that uh, I, I can accomplish next that gives you that same sort of connection to history, to the future, to importance. Now, I went back on the street, but I didn't feel the same sort of rush I did when I worked undercover as a ghost anymore. It couldn't compete with working undercover directly with the target. And I found that, man, I am really good at this. I just have a gift for working undercover. And that's what I want to do if I stay in the FBI. But I also knew that if I did that, if I went to special agents class, which I could have done, and I started working the dangerous undercover direct investigations, mob or crime or terrorism, I probably would not be able to keep my wife. I wouldn't stay married. It wouldn't be fair to her, and it wouldn't be fair to the marriage and to the family that we did eventually want to raise. So I decided to leave the FBI. I mean, everybody threw me this great big party. It was, a, it, it was wonderful, and, and part of that is because when you walk away, you walk away, and that's very hard. Leaving the FBI is very difficult. All those people who work on the most sensitive national security matters, who are your friends, suddenly aren't. You lose contact with them because now you're in this position of not being able to talk about things, and it makes it harder and harder. And you know that going out. I kept in contact with my partner, but beyond that, there was a whole family that I left. That was my divorce. But I got to keep my wife. And so I have no regrets. Honey. I don't feel like talking. I don't feel like talking. You on the phone, but I'll tell you. Eric O'Neill now works as a national security strategist and a public speaker. He recounts his experience with Hansen in the book, Gray Day, My Undercover Mission to Expose America's First Cyber Spy. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor for podcast is Dan Efron. Our team includes Rob Sachs, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rosie Julin, and Claudia Tatey. We now have a free newsletter with beautiful illustrations that the artist Guy Shield makes for us. Show notes and other good stuff. To sign up, go to foreignpolicy.com slash newsletter. That's foreignpolicy.com slash newsletter. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in not just espionage, but smart news and analysis from around the world, please consider subscribing. 
iSpy listeners get a 10% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code podcast at checkout. Next week on the show, a CIA officer investigating the death of an American woman in Iraq comes face to face with a Sunni insurgent. I walk across the room, I walk straight over to Abu Muhammad, and I shake his hand and I say, Salamu alaikum, kafiq ya Abu Muhammad. And he is shocked. Bikelem Arabi? You speak Arabic? That's next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. We'll be waiting for.